Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash press on and use code press on 25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press on falsies. Welcome to a new issue of the Vice Magazine podcast, your definitive monthly guide to enlightening information. I'm Alice Jones, editor in chief of Vice Magazine. Unlike last month's episode that focused on the future of tech, our March issue was objectively themeless. However, in the process of creating this podcast, we found a few through lines. In many ways, this episode is about identity. From the frog on our cover, to a rapper dealing with his perception in our media landscape, to the refugee crisis in Greece, today's episode deals with the people striving to break the molds that have been forced upon them. Here's our table of contents. Photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom explains how the cover of our March issue might make you do a double take. With all of our Vice cover images, you really want something that's going to hit our reader on the head. Infographic virtuoso Haysam Hussein hits the jackpot with a set of facts about global lotteries. After the U.S. was founded, Congress used lottery profits to help build Washington, D.C. Freedom of Information Act expert Jason Leopold uncovers new details on the plane hijacking you always thought was an urban legend. Here are the facts. It's still unknown if Cooper survived. Author, illustrator, and activist Molly Crabapple reveals to senior editor Chris Carroll that Greece's anarchists might be taking better care of refugees than the government. Greece is also a place that has an extremely strong left. The left in Greece fought the Nazis. The communist parties in Greece are better developed than they would be in a country like America. And our own Erica Allen interviews Noisy's Kyle Kramer about his time in the studio interviewing rapper Vince Staples. He was just saying, like, look, you know, the music that influenced me as an artist, I'm 23 years old or whatever. I grew up listening to like Soldier Boy and Lil Bow Wow. Finally, Chloe Campion, a producer here at Vice, shares a story about an item she picked up while hiking in Nepal. Here's your chance to take a guess at what it is. It's blue, soft and flowy, slightly tattered with patterns on it and smells a little bit like the wilderness. This month's cover features an up-close shot of a frog cupped between a pair of hands. I absolutely love this cover, and it was one of the easiest ones we've ever put together. The minute it was mocked up, we all fell in love with it. And I assure you that that rarely happens in the selection process. The photographer, Bobby Doherty, actually used to intern here at Vice years ago. He's always had a great eye and fun style, so I'm thrilled that he finally got his own Vice cover. Here's photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom discussing where the frog came from and the special effect we added to the cover to give it a little something extra. With all of our Vice cover images, you really want something that's going to hit our reader on the head. Bobby Doherty is the artist behind the photo. He said he was on a hike with his boyfriend, Zach, in the Adirondacks. And they came upon it on a hike, and he grabbed it and then took a photo of it. 
What's striking about this image to me is the contrast of the frog's really lumpy, scaly skin amongst all this white, really zoomed in flesh of his boyfriend's hand. We're really excited about bringing out some of the texture in the animal's skin through the process of embossing. This cover sparks a lot of questions about whether or not this frog is being squeezed to death or whether it's being held really closely and protected. And the mystery of it is something that leaves our readers applying how this frog is feeling to themselves with the mounting pressure surrounding it. Covers like this are special because it came from a really quick, small moment in Bobby's life, and now it's on the cover for everybody to see. Despite the reputation of being the scam of all scams, lotteries continue to bring in more than $70 billion in America alone. Here's Haisam Hussein breaking down global lotteries by the numbers. This is Haisam Hussein back to talk about this month's infographic, and this time we're focusing on lotteries. I'm sure we're all familiar with lottery games. You can find them pretty much anywhere you go. And they've been around since, well, before the U.S. was officially the U.S. As a matter of fact, King James I of England used them to raise money for the British colonies here. Decades later, after the U.S. was founded, Congress used lottery profits to help build Washington, D.C. Then in 1878, lotteries were outlawed across the U.S. and they stayed outlawed until 1964 when New Hampshire established the first state lottery. Other states quickly realized how much money they could be making, and all but seven started their own lotteries. Today, New York is the most profitable of those. In 2014, it took in just over $9 billion in total sales. As a comparison, Nevada, one of the states that doesn't operate a lottery, that same year took in $11 billion from their gambling operations. People spend more on lotteries than they do on sports tickets, movie tickets, books, video games, and music combined. We spent a total of $70 billion on lotteries in 2014. That works out to a U.S. average of $300 per player. The state that spends the most turns out to be Rhode Island. The average annual spending there is almost $800. The state that spends the least, North Dakota, with about $36 spent each year. States that operate their own lotteries get to keep the earnings. Some of those earnings are set aside for public services. In New York, for example, about a third of the profits goes into supporting public education. Critics point out that the lottery is basically a regressive tax, one that affects the poor more than any other group. People with lower incomes tend to spend a higher proportion of that income on lottery games, with very little chance of making that back. If you want to get a sense of how terrible your chances are when you play a lottery game, then take a look at the lottery simulator on the LA Times website. They give you a hundred bucks of virtual cash, and you can play a pick six game and watch your money disappear incredibly fast. It's a little scary, actually. Let's talk about what I had to cut for space this month. I really wanted to include a couple of stories about lottery scams, but just couldn't fit that on the page, so I'll tell you about one of them right now. It's one of the biggest lottery scams in the US, and it happened in 1980 in Pennsylvania. A guy named Nick Perry was a lottery announcer on the local TV station in Pennsylvania at the time, and he's considered the mastermind of the plan. 
The idea was to use weighted balls in vacuum tube machines. These are the machines that are used to pick the winning numbers. Weighing down certain balls meant that certain numbers, being heavier, wouldn't make it up the cylinder to be drawn as winners. So all but the fours and the sixes were weighed down, and those who knew about the fix bet heavily on those combinations, including fours and sixes. The jackpot at the time had reached a uh, then record $3.5 million, and when the winning numbers were drawn, they were 666. So they managed to pull it off, but they didn't get away with it. An insider tipped off the authorities, and Perry was ultimately sentenced to seven years in prison. If you haven't already seen this month's infographic, you can find it in our current issue or online at vice.com magazine. That's all for this audio edition of How It Works. I'll be back next month to talk to you about international trade. Have you heard the urban legend about the man who steals thousands of dollars and escapes by jumping out of a plane never to be seen again? It's actually a real story. Freedom of Information Act expert Jason Leopold explains why the FBI is finally putting this file to rest. Norjack. That's the nickname the FBI gave one of its most infamous unsolved investigations. It stands for Northwest Hijacking, and last July the Bureau announced that it was closing the books on the case. What's the Northwest Hijacking? I'll explain. According to legend, a man named D.B. Cooper jumped out of a plane somewhere in the Pacific Northwest with $200,000 in ransom money strapped to his body. Then he disappeared. Here are the facts. It's still unknown if Cooper survived. And for years, the only clues that ever surfaced were part of Cooper's parachute, his tie, and about $5,800 in $20 bills that matched the serial numbers of the ransom money that a young boy found in 1980. This incident took place in 1971. And since 2017 marks the end of the FBI's 45-year probe into Cooper's disappearance, the case files became subject to release under the Freedom of Information Act. That's how I got a hold of the 395 pages of files that represent what's believed to be a cache of tens of thousands of pages the FBI amassed in the last four and a half decades. Mind you, this case is still unsolved. But that doesn't mean that there isn't anything interesting in these files. Here are four items that stuck out to me. I'm holding a memo sent to the FBI special agent in charge in San Diego on the day of the hijacking, alerting them that an unknown suspect had a bomb and demanded $200,000. If you happen to have a copy of the magazine or are looking online, you'll notice that the number and letter combination, that's 164-new on this page. It's an FBI classification code and it means crime aboard aircraft. Here's a news report from 1980, penned by a reporter who claims that a source had passed him, quote, more evidence that Cooper surfaced in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1977 and that his whereabouts were known to, quote, prominent U.S. officials. For the FBI, this story is chock full of investigative leads, and I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to unmask the reporter's confidential source, knowing how the FBI works. Finally, 
These are some of the serial numbers from the $20 bills that composed the random money that was given to Mr. Cooper. The FBI sent these numbers to newspapers, which printed them in installments with hopes of tracking the cash and hopefully Cooper himself. Remarkably, other than the money that the eight-year-old found in 1980, to this day, none of the ransom money has ever turned up. Generally, the FBI first releases files that are easiest to review. And in this case, these files are made up mostly of news clippings. But the next set of D.B. Cooper documents the FBI plans on issuing should include the FBI's summaries of interviews with key witnesses, which has never been released. I'll keep you updated. In the meantime, check the serial numbers on your $20 bills. And I'm Jason Leopold reporting for Vice Magazine. Now for this episode's deep dive. Last fall, we sent Molly Crabapple to Greece to cover the refugee crisis. She spent some time with some of the refugees who've been unable to leave the country since the closing of the Balkan borders to the north and the signing of a deal between the EU and Turkey. The deal was meant to deport or resettle the refugees, but many are still waiting for a solution. What brought you to Greece? in the first place for this piece? I've been covering issues around the Syrian war and around uh, Syrian refugees for the last three years. I've covered them in uh, Lebanon, in Iraq. I've volunteered in schools for Syrian refugee kids on the Turkish-Syrian border. The reason that I was brought to covering this particular story was that about four months before I came to Greece, I got a Facebook message from someone who I'd been introduced to by an acquaintance who was a young man who was living in a hotspot, a refugee camp on the island of Samos. And his name is Muaz Khayba. He told me that he was a photographer, that his brother had been a media activist inside Syria, and that he had been stuck in this refugee camp for months, uh, living in a tent. And he sent me these extraordinary photos of a protest that was taking place by refugees. Over the next months, I continued to speak to Moaz. He sent me information about a young Pakistani man who tried to self-immolate. He sent me information about police harassment. He told me about daily life. And I wanted to write something more extensive, not just about Moaz, but about all of these people who, after the EU-Turkey deal, had been essentially trapped in these refugee camps on these islands. For people who maybe don't know about this deal, what was the idea behind the EU-Turkey deal? What were they trying to do? In a response to the massive movement of people that happened in 2015, in early 2016, the neighbors of Greece, the Balkan neighbors, shut their doors and built fences, and they started refusing to allow refugees to walk or uh, transit through them to the richer countries of Northern Europe. And what happened after this was refugees started to pile up in border towns like Idomeni. In some ways, in a response, the EU and Turkey arranged a deal where Turkey got a lot of money. And also they got some promises that weren't really fulfilled for various reasons that Turkish citizens might get a visa-free travel to Europe and that Turkey might be considered for, for EU membership. And in return, Turkey promised two things. The first was that they promised to somehow stop the refugee boats that take off from Turkish coastal cities like Izmir. The second thing that they promised was that they would accept refugees that were deported back from Greece. And the deal was that basically every refugee was supposed to be deported back to Turkey. 
and then an equivalent amount of refugees were supposed to be taken from Turkey, who had not tried to arrive by boat, and they would be accepted for asylum. Of course, the deal in no way worked out this way. NGOs immediately condemned uh, this deal as a violation of refugee conventions because, you know, it's just deporting everyone back to Turkey. Independent judges said that Turkey was not a safe country, which is true for many nationalities and some types of cases. Turkey did not actually, quote-unquote, stop the boats because it would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to patrol your entire coastline and stop every single small lifeboat that is departing from someone's vacation property who's been paid off. Though certainly the Turkish Coast Guards have done very many violent things to try to intervene with some boats. Most importantly, uh, the EU did not accept an equivalent number of people from Turkey. So despite the intentions of the deal, what actually happened was that people kept arriving to Greece, though in smaller numbers. But instead of being allowed to move on from Greece, which was what happened in 2015, they're trapped inside Greece. And most particularly, and this is the biggest difference, is that in 2015, if you landed in a boat on an island, you would just take a ferry to the mainland. Then from the mainland, you would get a smuggler or you'd walk. And you'd only be on the island for like a day or two. Yeah, right? yeah, a day, not, a day or two at most, hours very yeah. often. Whereas now, these islands are places that people are trapped on. And they're trapped in these things that are called the Refugee Reception and Identification Centers, or hotspots, which are essentially barbed wire ringed camps with no schools. The housing is either porta cabins or for many, many, many people, tents, and just nothing to do. And people are just languishing in these places, and they're languishing indefinitely in many cases. And so this is sort of where both Muaz and Walid, who you talk about in the piece, come in. I mean, you have refugees who are coming to these places where previously they would have been held for a day, and then they'd move on to Greece, to the mainland, and then make their way north through the Balkan countries. Instead, they're trapped here for months, and in some cases, it seems like indefinitely. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about Walid, who seemed to have been stuck in this sort of indefinite trap. Uh, Walid was a young Palestinian man that I met at the Samos hotspot. Now, Palestinians who were born in Syria have a very Kafka-esque situation. Because they're of Palestinian descent, they were not given Syrian passports. They you know, had papers to live in Syria, but they're not Syrian citizens. However, Walid and people like him fled the same Syrian war that every other Syrian refugee on the island has. However, unlike them, because he doesn't have these papers, he was not considered a Syrian refugee. He was considered a Palestinian, but he can't be deported back to Palestine. So instead, he's trapped in this hotspot, in this sort of legal limbo. And what he told me was basically that people meant to hear asylum claims just kept telling Palestinians to come back as a sort of indefinite putting it off because they hadn't decided what to do about it. And so Walid spoke perfect English, was a cameraman in Dubai. He wanted to work as an engineer. And here he was stuck for seven months living in a tent inside basically a shipping container with just nothing. Now, at this point, Walid is on the mainland. He was able to find a smuggler which is how most people get off of the island now. And one of the ironic things about borders is that every time a border is set up, it creates a whole new industry of smugglers. Smugglers are are literally created by these closures. So whereas in the old days, in 2015, you would just buy a ticket on a legal ferry, now there's a massive mafia-style industry of smugglers dealing in a fake identification. 
And so you mentioned the kindness of the Greeks. You had visited these island facilities, which obviously were, you know, the conditions were awful. But then on the mainland, you were back in Athens, and you saw something that maybe actually gave you a, a bit more hope. Greece is a country that, for over a decade now, has been at the crossroads of irregular immigration. In fact, I mean, for decades, uh, just because of its space. It's a place where Iraqis and uh, Afghans who are fleeing uh, the American wars in their countries fled through to try to get through Europe. And so... Greece has long-standing immigrant communities and has long-standing refugee communities. Greece is also a place that has an extremely strong left. The left in Greece fought the Nazis. The communist parties in Greece are unimaginably better developed than they would be in a country like America. Anarchists are much more organized and much more together there. And there has been a long-standing collaboration between elements of the Greek left and refugee communities. The first time that I came to Greece in 2012 to write about the economic crisis, many leftist activists that I knew were also very involved in protests against detention centers and were also intimately involved in activities like an annual anti-racist festival. Now, this is something that existed before uh, 2015, before the Great Migration that happened then. But once that started happening these very long-standing structures snapped into place to work with and help refugees. And I don't want to call what they did charity, because that's not the ethos that they subscribe to. They don't consider themselves charities. They consider themselves as solidarity structures, where people who are equals give each other mutual aid and they live together. One of the things that these very long-standing structures did was set up squats. Currently, I believe... About 10% of refugees in Greece live in squats. That's about five or 6,000 people, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Five or 6,000 people getting housing in, in city centers. And so one squat that I visited was called City Plaza. It was started by a pretty long-standing activists, uh, some of them uh, Greek, some of them uh, from refugee communities. Uh, the man that I interviewed, uh, one of its organizers was an Afghan refugee who had come in 2003. And uh, City Plaza had been a hotel that went bankrupt. And the workers had been awarded it in a court settlement, but it was, it was just vacant. And so the workers gave it to this leftist group to have refugees live in the hotel. They were housing about 400 people. Uh, there's a cafe there. There's Greek and English language lessons there. There's a stream of international volunteers. Which is crucial, right? I mean, because there's no education on these island facilities Nothing. where people will be for sometimes half a year or more. Nothing. And you could imagine, like, you have set, you're a seven-year-old. I mean, that's a crucial half a year in people's lives. On the mainland, there is a push to get refugee kids into schools. Some refugee kids are in schools, though, unfortunately, there's also a resistance to that by the Greek fascist party, the Golden Dawn. And so, yeah, you have people living dignified lives in these squats. And also, the thing that's kind of extraordinary is that in the refugee camps on the islands, there's a lot of tension between uh, different ethnic groups. And that's something that's, in my opinion, largely caused by just sort of the extreme overcrowding, like living on top of each other. Then, when you're in City Plaza, they have a very hardline anti-racist ideology. And you see, like, Afghans and Syrians and Pakistanis and people from different African countries that are living together. And there is not this sort of tension that there would be in the camps. Another thing that I think is very important, that's a sort of philosophical difference, is then the camps, I mean, in the hotspot camp, in the hotspots, people, they just sit there, right? Like things are done to them. Like you wait online for your like little microwaved food that some company in Athens is getting a kickback for giving you. You wait and maybe you receive services. 
Whereas in these squats, they are run in large part by the refugees themselves. And the work in them is done by the refugees. And they are places that don't exist on this model of top-down, you know, we're in charge, you are the beneficiaries, we tell you what's best, we, you, you wait for services, but rather on a model of refugees doing things for themselves. The ultimate thing is that as long as there are these wars in Afghanistan and in Syria and in Iraq, and as long as there's this hideous dictatorship in Eritrea, there are going to be populations of people that you know need to move. And as long as neighboring countries like Pakistan and Iran and um, Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan uh, don't give people ways to uh, bureaucratically settle their situation, as long as people in those countries live precarious existences without documents and with a lot of labor exploitation, they're going to try to get a better life for themselves and for their kids. Now let's turn to music. Publications often cover rap artists in brash and arguably sensationalized ways. This conflict of perception between an artist and the media is one of the many subjects discussed when noisy editor Kyle Kramer profiled rapper Vince Staples for this issue of the magazine. Here, Kyle reflects on his interview with senior editor Erica Allen. Set the scene for us a little bit. You were in the studio in L.A. He was recording an album that is just about to come out. You really do get a sense from his music, and because he is 23 years old, that he's young and messing around and he's funny. So you think of him as sort of a goofball, but it's interesting to know that I learned in the profile that he runs a tight ship. Vince Staples, to a lot of people, like the way that they first found out about him was he sort of went on this accidental Jeremiah last year where he kept being interviewed for stuff and something would come up where he would talk about like, oh, you know, the 90s and rap was kind of overrated. I feel like it was always this like super misunderstood thing because it was always he was just saying like, look, you know, the music that influenced me as an artist, I'm 23 years old or whatever. I grew up listening to, like, Soldier Boy and Lil Bow Wow. Like, I didn't grow up listening to Jay-Z and Nas, Nas yeah. and Biggie and Tupac because they were already out of the game yeah. or, like, they were already not alive in, yeah. in the case of Biggie and Pac when I was a kid. So, like, that wasn't my thing, and so I was never that into that. Then he became, like, the scapegoat for this whole mindset of, like... People not paying their dues. And right, exactly. Respecting their elders. Right? Exactly, and, like, not understanding the history. And it's super ironic because, actually, his team is the most tied into that that you could get. If anybody kind of has a respect for the craft and thinks about things in terms of the way that those 90s rappers thought about them, like, it's probably Vince Staples, you know? Like, his music sounds modern, but you can also get the sound that comes from that classic 90s sound. And then the mindset of it is very much like, oh, yeah, this is me telling a story or, like, explaining my worldview or whatever. Vince, I think, is such a smart guy. I mean, he's been a prominent voice since he was like 21 at least 
and he's so smart. You hear him talk and he says stuff that sounds like it could be coming out of like a sociology professor's mouth, you know? It could be coming out of a sociology professor's mouth or like Dave Chappelle's mouth, you know? Like he's like super, super funny, but also gets the big picture. One of the challenges he faces is that he like, he still is like pretty, you know, connected like any of us are to where he grew up and who he grew up around. And also it, it is artistically beneficial for him to some extent to stay connected to that and like be able to have the credibility to say, okay, like, look, I, you know, like I came from like gang life in Long Beach and I, you know, and I still like, I still know the history and I still know the people involved or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, he like takes a very pragmatic view of both the way that people will see that as it's portrayed in his art and then also you know like what it means in the broader context of the world because he's like traveled all over the world and you know is now a very successful artist and like has no need to be connected to that from a basic financial economic level and i like that he loves to make fun of journalists who are obsessed with talking about it right and then it's like obviously that's not my life let's move on yeah it's very interesting to journalists and he's one of those people who can be like look like i understand why this is interesting to you because you don't know it and like it is interesting like inherently this is interesting like we should be talking about it you know but then at a certain point i think it becomes a difficult thing to be the spokesperson for it you know probably his most well-known video it's like a very powerful image uh where you just see like all these it's him and his neighborhood and it's all his friends collapsing as if they've been shot or being shot and it's all in black and white and at the end of the video it zooms out and you see it's in color all of a sudden and we're in a movie theater and it's just a white audience watching the video and it's like a pretty straightforward metaphor but it is super direct of him just being like okay this is what it's like to be me right now and make this music and my audience is white kids and white people and I'm like explaining this world to them and forced to become the stand-in for it and I think that really is hard on him and that was the theme of a lot of what we talked about honestly is you know he was like oh we treat musicians so poorly like everybody always asks musicians to explain everything that we do and I don't want to explain it like it's already in the music it's already in the art it's not that complicated you know like how much more do you need to ask me about like being in a gang just listen to my lyrics where I talk about my friend getting shot or listen to my lyrics where I talk about in great detail like describe like literally like the block and the address and like you know the whole scene like how much more do you need to hear from me to like understand what I'm talking about He made a good point that, like, we don't ask a lot of other artists, like a film director, you don't expect them to be like, every movie I've made is autobiographical, and let me explain, like, my personal influence and how this scene, you know, this scene came from when I was seven, you know, and yet we do expect that of musicians, that every song that they write is somehow about their actual relationship, their marriage, their relationship with their mom. It's like, it's art. Yeah, I mean, like, look at the Beyonce album that came out last year, and everybody's, like, 
in their internet conspiracy theory mode, like trying to piece together like the timeline of like when Jay-Z cheated on Beyonce, where it was and who it was with. And it's like, maybe this is just an album about the idea of infidelity, like testing a marriage. Like, I mean, maybe Jay-Z did cheat on Beyonce, but like, you don't need to know that. Like, that doesn't need to be real for you to enjoy this album. But it becomes so much this, like, literal interpretation of things that I think is so bizarre. One of the perks of working at Vice is the ability to pursue stories all across the globe. And more often than not, reporters come back with more than just a story, like little tchotchkes or tokens to remember their trip by. But here, we call them artifacts, and each month we feature a different item picked up on a staffer's travels. This month's artifact was picked up by Chloe Campion from the mountains of Nepal. It was May of last year, so 2016, and I was traveling with a camera crew from Kathmandu in Nepal into the Annapurna mountain region outside of the city. We had driven for a full day and then hiked for another full day and then slept next to a waterfall, the loudest waterfall that I've ever heard before in my life. When we woke up the next morning, we were to ascend up on what seemed like a vertical incline to the village that we'd be staying. And our plan was to go with the village there out on a three-day honey hunt to hunt for a honey that was supposedly hallucinogenic. It's been known around the world for centuries as such. And as we hiked this last leg of our journey up to this remote village in the mountains, our crew was exhausted and overwhelmed. I think almost everyone was smokers on it, so everyone was a little bit pissed off at the incline. Night was starting to set, and we were a bit worried we weren't going to get to the top on time. At a certain point, we started to hear a clapping in the distance and women's voices chanting and shouting, and as we sort of came around a bend, there was the entire women from the village, all dressed in their best clothing, to welcome us in. And this scarf was something that they put on all of us. Mine was blue because I was the only woman in the crew. From there, they took us into their town hall to celebrate and drink and fall asleep. The scarf reminds me of how pure everything felt up there. The roads are still unconnected between villages, and so getting up to where they live sort of seems like a place in nature that's still untouched by the modern world. I keep the scarf hanging over my bed in my apartment in Brooklyn. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue was produced and edited by Tim Barnes with incredible production assistance from our intern, Chamika Lightwood. For more information on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com and be sure to leave a review for the Vice Magazine podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app that you use. I'm Ellis Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Hassam Hussein, Jason Leopold, Chris Carroll, Molly Crabapple, Erica Allen, Kyle Kramer, and Chloe Campion. We'll be back next month with the April issue. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. 
We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.